Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Alice Johnson, criminal justice reform advocate who got a pardon for her life sentence back in 2018. We talk about her story of being a non-violent first-time offender, mandatory minimum sentences, and her work with the Ross Albrecht. Alice also tells us about how, what it was like being in prison, how she has advocated, and why she isn't giving up. Alice is an extraordinary person. I had the privilege of meeting her at Bitcoin 2021 and learning more about her story. You can tell through this interview just how much of a go-getter she is and how much compassion she has for others. Her story of being screwed over by the justice system really was eye-opening. I hope by listening to this interview, you can understand her advocacy of Ross. Alice Marie Johnson, how is everything going? Everything is going great. I've had a incredible, I'm not going to even call it an adventure, but it has truly been an amazing time since I came home from prison. Mm. Well, so let's talk about that because we we want to sort of like dive into everything, but but you obviously wrote a whole book about this, but can you tell us just sort of what happened and how it is that you managed to come home? Okay. Yes, my book is entitled Afterlife, My Journey from Incarceration to Freedom. And it is truly, Jimmy, a miraculous story. I think I'll start a little bit so that at the beginning, so you'll know a little bit more about my life and how I mm. came to that point of imprisonment. Mm. Sure. Okay. I was born 1955 in Mississippi. Mm. I grew up in a family of mother, father, nine of us, eight mm. girls and one boy. I guess mm. pretty, pretty normal, pretty normal <laughs> family in Mississippi, a family uh, with a lot of pride in our lives. My parents believed very strongly in education because they believed that education was the way to escape poverty. My parents were originally sharecroppers in Mississippi, and I was born during a very turbulent time in our history in America, during the time of Jim Crow in Mississippi. Hmm. So I learned about adversity and struggles and injustices very, very early in life. Hmm. I was I was married at a very young age, uh, only 15, pregnant and married. Oh, Wow. Because back there in that time, you just don't shame your family by being an unwed mother. Mm. So I found myself uh, another adversity that I had to overcome. I was still able to graduate high school and later on take college classes on time because I studied the coursework of my friends who were still in school. Because I had to miss a year out of school because you couldn't go to school. There was no classes for unwed mothers, but I still was able to graduate on time because I took all of their tests. Uh, I think that was my survival instincts that I learned from my parents how mm. to survive because they were able to escape sharecropping and move to another town 10 miles away, but it may as well have been two cities away, the change mm. in our lives. So I saw how to persevere. And I learned that from my parents and from the struggles we had to overcome. Mm -hmm. And I was able to always, because I could type very well, I could always get very good jobs uh, mm -hmm. using my typing skills, Jimmy, because I could type over 90 words a minute without errors. I knew nice. I had to be exceptional 
because my ex-husband was not about to let me go away to college mm. the way that my other siblings did. So I had to make sure I had some skills mm. and I actually integrated our little town's offices. I was the first uh, black person to work in an office in our little town. But I went on to have various jobs over the course of my marriage. My husband and I had five children uh, Mm. before we divorced. But over that time, I had various jobs. And coming in through maybe a secretarial position or clerical position, I always knew that I had to work hard, prove myself, be better than anyone else because I didn't have, you know, it was a very much male-dominated world back then Mm. in the early 70s. So I really had to work hard to rise, you know, to be able to rise up in corporate Mm. America. Over the course of that time, I used a gift that I had, and that was writing, that my ability to write would serve me well because one of the jobs that I'd gotten was at the Memphis Urban League, which is Memphis is right outside of Olive Branch, where I grew up. Mm. Memphis is on the very, Olive Branch is on the very tip. When I moved to Memphis, it was to leave a very turbulent, you know, turbulent marriage, even though Mm. me and my husband, we reconnected again later many times. But I initially left Mississippi in my early 20s and moved to Memphis. Uh, and one of the jobs that I got was with the Urban League, and it was a co-worker that was killed tragically. And I've always been able to write quickly and express my emotions through writing. And I wrote a poem about him, and just so happened his mentor was a vice president of FedEx. Hmm. And he was at a board meeting, and someone took him the poem that I had written, and he asked for me to, to come into that board meeting and he had tears in his eyes and he asked me if I wanted to work at FedEx. And I said, yes. He asked me if I wrote the poem <laughs> first. And I said, yes, I do. And I took a test with them. And once again, my typing skills got me into their clerical pool. Within a very short time, I had moved up into management. I'd be mm. the first one at work and the last one to leave. Because mm. I knew I had to really show dedication. And also, I've always been a hard worker. Mm. I've been working since I was a, really, since I could put a cotton sack on my back. Around <laughs> four years old, I was working in the fields in Mississippi and helping my parents. Uh, my mother was a renowned chef. And so they eventually got, uh, they had their own restaurant. But I always worked very hard. And at FedEx, I was able to prove myself there. And in no time, I had risen to management. Hmm. My career there was 10 years, first manager in computer ops, something I didn't know anything about. I had to educate myself and Hmm. then customer support. Hmm. And until the very last thing that I was doing with them was training other managers, people who were interested in management. I taught classes called Is Management for Me? But after 19 years of marriage and five children, me and my husband broke up for the very last time. We divorced and having married so young, Jimmy, I I realized a lot of things in life I missed. I'd Mm. never lived that life where I was, I'm going to say, out on the town. Mm. And the very first man that I became involved with was a professional gambler. And I started gambling, and that was the most exciting thing to me. The lights 
and the allure of the dog races and it just excitement. All of a sudden I've got excitement going on in my life. Mm. Little did I know that that excitement would lead me into a very bad place. Mm. I developed literally a gambling addiction. And it mm. was because of that that I lost my good job mm. at FedEx. All of a sudden, what seemed like fun wasn't fun. I'm going mm. into bankruptcy. My ex-husband has disappeared. He's mm. not helping me with the children. I filed bankruptcy. I'm about to lose my house. I get a visit. And when this visit comes, it was from a cousin. And mm. apparently she knew something that I didn't know because I thought the man that I was seeing was simply a gambler, but he was not. And mm. she asked me if I knew anyone who knew anything about drugs in the area. And I thought it was insulting. I'm like, why would she ask me this? But she had apparently seen the man that I was dating at the racetrack and knew what he did, but I didn't. Hmm. And it would take me a few days later when I told him about the ridiculous question she asked me. He asked me, what did you tell her? And I said, no. I told her, no. I said, do you know someone? He said, yeah, you're looking at him. And so that's that's how that began. My my role was to if someone came in town, they called me. I didn't they didn't want me to know who I was talking to. They give me a phone number and I passed the number. Hmm. And the first time I got a thousand dollars, Jimmy, literally it put it kept my utilities on and put food on the table. I had a daughter in college by now. Hmm. And it just it was crazy. Somehow You know, when you're doing things wrong, when you make a bad decision, really out of desperation, I somehow didn't see myself as a drug dealer because I'm passing phone messages. But anything, any role that I played in that, Jimmy, I've never made excuses for what I did. I made a Mm. very bad decision under some very, very tough situation out of desperation. But, Mm. you know, looking back on that now... I don't even recognize why I would even say okay to that mm. because mm. I was totally against anything to do with drugs. Mm. So anyway, when everything fell apart, the very people who brought me into this as what we call a, a telephone mule, mm. one of them got caught and he had my number and I've got the phone records and all of a sudden I'm his boss. Because he was trying to protect the others. I'm the liaison to pass the phone numbers, but he didn't even know what I look like. So he tells them I'm his boss and I find myself in a drug conspiracy. They offered me three to five years. I chose to go to trial. My lawyer told me no way should you take that plea because you don't have drugs. You don't have money. I didn't even have when I went to prison. I didn't even have $500 in the bank, no pay for a house, no pay for a car, yet I'm labeled as some type of queen pen. And the mm. people who testified against me as being their boss didn't recognize me in the courtroom, didn't know where I lived. But that is the nature of a drug conspiracy. Mm. And I thought that I was going to be given, you know, a small amount of time because, it, you know, when I'm sentenced, I'm 40, you know, going into my 41st year. I'm 41, and I really had no idea that a life sentence was even on the table. Mm. When I found out several weeks before my sentencing, because they had to give me the pre-sentence report for the recommendation, I was convicted of one thing, of a much smaller quantity of attempted possession, not even possession, 
But at that time, you can't do that now. The prosecutor was able to put an estimated amount where that number came from. I have no idea. But he put this large estimated amount that was not ever even a part of my case. And I was sentenced to life plus 25 years, Jimmy, without the possibility of parole. Wow. First time offender. And Mm. you talking about a shock for me, a shock for my family. It was unbelievable. I never Mm. forget being handcuffed, the agents handcuffing me and whispering in my ear, trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat, because it was on Halloween. Oh, and so that was really the last thing I heard in my ear as they're handcuffing me the day of the conviction, actually. But mm. also, I want to back up just a little bit. One of the reasons that my attorney had me so convinced that there's no way that they know that I don't have this big role is because all the people who testified against me couldn't get a bond. Mm. They could not get a bond. And they give me a very low, relatively low bond of $10,000. And I've got to pay a thousand dollars to the bail bondsman to stay free. And I was out for two years, continuing to work because mm. I'm working. I started work. I'm working every day, long hours taking care of my children. And so I really, my attorney convinced me that they don't have anything on you, Alice. You don't have any money. You don't have any drugs. And in fact, he famously said in his closing arguments, where's the beef? Meaning, where is the money and where is that lavish lifestyle for this woman to be a queen pen? Yet I was sentenced and called a queen pen of an operation of drugs that I'd never sold before or even Mm. handled or made the deals. And, Mm. you know, just the prospect of going to prison and never seeing my children again. Jim, I remember at my sentencing, the judge said something really cruel. And really, she don't know that she inspired me when she said it. She wanted me to be housed at a facility where they could take care of my mental health needs that also had a mental health part in the prison. Mm. And I thought to myself when she said that a woman such as yourself, Miss Johnson, need to be somewhere where they can take care of your mental health needs. I thought to myself, you will lose your mind before I lose mine. And Mm. just so know that that did something to me, just the thought, because I've been through many adversities in my life and I didn't know what the future would hold for me. I didn't really believe I would do a life sentence. I didn't give up my faith and my hope that one day I would be set free. But she was not going to determine that I felt that she was feeling I would be so weak that I would just lose my mind. Mm. So I was determined that. I will not let anyone take my life rather than getting busy with the business of dying in prison. I'm going to get busy with the business of living. Mm. And I remember going in as I boarded that plane that would take me 15. I didn't go to that place. I went somewhere else because I didn't want to go to a mental health place. I didn't Mm. have any diagnosis of any suicide tendencies, any mental health in my past, and I wasn't going and I didn't go. But instead, Ah. they sent me to a place that was 1,500 miles away from my children. Mm. That was, Jimmy, a huge shock to me. I remember crying on that plane thinking how every mile that that plane, they called it Con Air because it's an airplane, that huge plane that's been gutted to carry hundreds of prisoners. Everyone shackled up. 
And when I was looking at that wonder, every mile that was that seems like that we that further the plane was going, the further I know knew that I was going away from my children. And before something that I left out of the things that happened to me, getting mixed up into this, my youngest son was tragically killed doing this whole mm. thing of not having any money. I don't have any insurance. My youngest son who was only 12 and his brother was 14, was tragically killed in a motorcycle on a scooter accident that my 14-year-old was driving. And we still, to this day, don't know what happened. But we do know that they put a stop sign up right after that. Mm. So with all of the other things that were coming down on me, loss of job, marriage, found, you know, divorce, loss of everything, I lost my son. And I really was numb and crazy at that time because this was my youngest son. It could have been either one of my children and it would have mm-hmm. been just as painful. But I didn't even have money for funeral cost. And mm-hmm. I continued on in what I was doing, really in a, such a state of grief. Some things still are very blurry to me that went on during that time period. So I left four children at home, two in college, one who was a senior. And he dropped out because he couldn't stand the pressure of everything that was in the newspaper about his mother. He just dropped out. He later went on and got his GED and went to college. But my family was just torn apart. But my youngest son, who'd been the driver, he was only a teenager. And he got in trouble himself when I went away. And he was the one who has such big ambitions about going to college. Prison, this is what it does. When one person goes, their whole family goes. My children went with me too. Our family was broken. They didn't have a father anymore in their lives, and their mother was just snatched away. And they're told that, in fact, the prosecutor, one of the prosecutors, it was two, as I was being led away, they told my daughter, who was in college, You can kiss your mama goodbye because you'll never see her again. Oh, wow. you know, when you add cruelty and you do things like that to a family, you know, sometimes I just wonder where is the conscious that you could just consciously tell someone something like that. Hmm. But I was able to, my first prison that I went to was in California and Hmm. I'm leaving Memphis going 1500 miles away. And Hmm. the, the whole time I was in, I was only there for a year, but that entire time in California, I never saw my children. Because mm. there was no way they could travel that far. Mm. And my first days in prison, it was a blur. I looked around seeing concrete, steel, and razor wire. Mm. It was that even though the prison in California had some very famous people there, it would be, I'm really glad that I went there first because it wasn't such a shock. It was mm. every other prison that I went to after that. They had you didn't see flowers, you didn't see anything. But in California, they had flowers and things planted out there. It didn't look so much like a terrible prison because there was color there. Mm. So I'm really glad I started off my time there. But mm. immediately I started going to the law library because I want to know how this could have happened to me. And that's when I read about mandatory minimum sentencing the crime bill, the war on drugs. I was educated in prison as to how this could happen to me and many of the other women who I was incarcerated with. Hmm. And I was determined that I was not going to let this take my life from me. So I started, Jimmy, 
to really look at it. What can I do? What can I do here? Because it was really, it could be a very depressing place. Mm. One of my first jobs that I got there was in vocational technical. And Mm. I was tasked to help people prepare to be released from prison Mm. by helping them with typing and reading. uh, I did mock interviews and because I interviewed hundreds of people in my lifetime by then. Give it doing mock interviews, helping them rewrite their resumes and, you know, teaching typing classes and other classes. But one thing that I saw, Jimmy, was women who had long sentences like myself or even 20 or 30 years. They were not allowed to take those classes because they said that their time, they had too much time. Let the short timers take these classes. So they didn't have things to do. And so I asked the question. Why are you not fighting for this? How do you tell a woman not to hope? Hmm. And they tell me, Miss Alice, it's always been like this. Do you think you're going to come in here and change it just because you say so? I said, I'm going to try. And sure enough, Jimmy, I prevailed. I wrote this up. I spoke with the warden, spoke to others, and I fought and I prevailed. And they had to start letting women with long sentences. They had to have a percentage of them in the classes. And that was really a really big thing because it changed not only for that prison, but for others. Jimmy, I'll tell you about that later, but I'm going to skip to this. When I came home from prison in 2018, in 2019, I was called to the United Nations. And because of the changes that I made while I was incarcerated, fighting for women and for things that impacted us, I was awarded at the United Nations the Women's Rights Defender designation. Only four women around the world were given that. And it was not because of the work that I did when I came out, hmm. but the work and the and the things that they heard about me. And it's not because I told them. The hmm. things that they heard about me that I've been able to change culture in prison. So sometimes we think things that we do go unnoticed, but you never know. I never thought that the things I did would ever receive any attention. Uh, and mm. I didn't do it for because who could guess something like that? Not me. But mm. you know, just, just that was within my very first year of being in prison. I remember mm. I'd only been there a few days when this woman in a wheelchair stopped me and asked me my name. And I told her she saw I was sad. And she said, Alice, bloom where you're planted. God knows where you are. Mm. And she don't know that those words changed my life. And I just kept thinking, God knows where I'm at. He didn't put me here, but I sure can be used wherever I am. I start praying, Lord, use me here. If you can Mm. use me, use me here. And I started writing plays. I started doing a lot of things to change culture. The next prison that they shipped me to after a year was closer to home. It was in Texas. And Mm. my children were able to visit me. But the 15 years that I was there, I was able to literally, Jimmy, change culture. I started Mm. writing plays and I brought theater and the arts into prison and Mm. women who never had heard, who never heard anyone applaud them now were being applauded. They could sing. I was choreographing dance, writing and producing plays. I got artists together. They were making the most beautiful artwork and props you'd ever want to see. And I'd always tell the women this was for them. So on the play nights, I'd have to do four performances. 
In fact, Jimmy, my place became so popular in prison that the outside public had to get tickets to come on the inside to see the hmm. place that I produced. And and that really kept me busy just doing things for other people. I started, I saw the women at this prison. Now there was women on mental health, but I wasn't on that floor. I was in general population, but also women in wheelchairs, women, uh, you know, that had physical and mental challenges. And so these women were kind of on the sidelines. You know, you, you're marginalized from people on the outside being in prison and they're inside prison being marginalized. Mm -hmm. So I helped coordinate the first ever Special Olympics for women with those challenges. And it got back to the National Special Olympics and they came out and I was awarded something that I know that was made up. They gave, <laughs> yeah, they gave me the Special Events, Special Olympics Event Coordinator of the Year Award. Now, since mm-hmm. then, I've never heard of that. And I've tried to look it up. There's no such thing. But they created that award to give to me because these women were getting gold, silver, bronze medals. It was a big thing there. Mm-hmm. And then I started uh, working with women who were dying in prison who were in hospice care. One of the other reasons I started doing that, Jimmy, was because my parents were elderly Mm. by this time. And I wanted to, I always thought when I go home, I never said if I go home. No one ever heard me say that. I'd always say when I go home. Mm. I was still fighting my case in the courts. I started putting in petitions uh, for clemency myself, but unfortunately I was denied several times. But during that time with these women, Sitting with women who are dying in prison was really made me know how blessed I was to have my health and strength. But I Mm. really wanted to give them comfort so that they did not have to die alone because many of their family members couldn't come see them in prison in Mm. that part, in the hospital part. So I became their family. I became so many women holding their hands as they transitioned from this world into the next. And really, that was as rewarding for me. Jimmy, I found that it was really hard to concentrate and feel sorry for myself when I'm serving other people. And Mm. I may have a longer sentence, but they don't have the same hope and the same faith that I have. Mm. And so that was something that, to me, I could give as a gift to them, too, was in part hope and in part faith. And it really just brings light into prison. Well, Mm. my very last prison that I went to was a brand new facility, Jimmy, that was being built in Alabama. And of all the names, it was called Aliceville. <laughs> nice. It was called Aliceville. I remember people making a joke when they realized I was going. They said, Alice in Aliceville. I'm sure you're going to turn it on his head, too. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, when I got there, I continued doing those things. But something else happened. The first time I was able to get my voice out publicly was in 2000. Let me back up. The ACLU was Hmm. doing this spotlighting people serving life sentences who had not committed a violent crime. And Hmm. out of over 3000 people who were in that situation, they selected six to be, I'm going to call their poster child for their ad campaign. Two women and four men. I was one of the women. Hmm. And so I'm in USA Today. It's the first time the public even heard about Alice Johnson. Mm. So I'm in all these ad campaigns and magazines, USA Today, the nation, and so much. But then in 2016, there was a radiothon 
and mm-hmm. they wanted to select a prisoner to speak on the radio from prison. Mm-hmm. And because I'd been doing so much for the facility that I was in, Aliceville, they selected me and submitted that I should be the one to be on there. Mm-hmm. So I was on the first ever radiothon that uh, President Obama did to discuss clemency and the need for criminal justice reform. Mm. And then I started speaking at the first college was Hunter's College. Then I mm. spoke at Yale University, University of Washington in Seattle, New York University. And then I started speaking at Google and YouTube platforms from prison, talking about clemencies and criminal justice reform. Mm. And I just knew that I'm out there because I'm really well known in prison. I probably was one of the most unknown, well known prisoners in the United States. Because Mm. I'm all in media. So I'm thinking, surely, because this clemency project 2014 had already come out and I met all of the criteria. So I just knew, Jimmy, that I was going home. I know Mm. that because I I met the criteria. But sure enough, I was passed by again. Mm. And everyone said, don't even hope no more. You got missed from that. They told my children that maybe later on something going to come up for your mother. Mm. And my daughter was just distraught. She could hardly take it. She even said, Mama, coming out here to visit you in prison, it's like visiting a graveyard. Mm. She said, I can come see the place where your body's laying, but I can never take you home again. That nearly broke me down then. Mm. But from that platform, someone with Mike, an online news media, another woman who had been my liaison, Topeka Sam, they asked her to contact me to see if I would do a video of it. Well, Jimmy, mm. everyone who I had so much favor with, with that prison had just left. The warden was gone. The captain was gone. My case manager was gone. All of these people had written letters to the president asking for my release. They'd mm. all written letters on my behalf, but unfortunately they were gone. So I just had to make a decision. I pulled out the papers that they had given me, said, in essence, a blanket. I'd never gotten in trouble. I had complete clear conduct for 21 years and almost 21 years at that point. And mm-hmm. I had to make a decision if I was going to do this video op-ed. I had nothing to lose. We had a brand new president and it didn't seem like he was interested in criminal justice reform. Hmm. And I made the decision, I'm going to do it. I took my papers out and it went viral. Hmm. And I think I told you, Jimmy, I didn't even know what viral was (laughs) because the internet came out while I was in prison. So I didn't know anything about the little tech trending. I remember the people coming by me saying, some of the staff said, Miss Johnson, you're trending. I'm like, what? (laughs) And a few hours later, someone told me, you just went viral. I almost fainted. I said, I know I'm going down now. I just introduced a virus into the internet. <laughs> it would be that viral video that someone who Kim Kardashian follows, who retweeted it, and she said she had not been on her phone on the internet in days. When she went on to Twitter, she said, my face popped up, and I was just starting my story. It was three minutes and 48 seconds. But before I go to that, yes, when she saw that, it was seven days the video had been out there after she saw it. But she tweeted out, this is so unfair. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it at that time, but she contacted her lawyer, Sean Holly, 
and asked her to find me. And she found me in prison and she told me that a very wealthy and famous client of hers wanted to help me get out of prison. And she asked me, would you like for me to do that? And I'm like, let me think about it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I had my daughter Google and find out who her clients, who Sean Holly's clients were. And she told me that it was, she sent me through email because we had email in prison. So my daughter was naming off. She already sent me the list. And then I called. She was naming off all of her clients. And I'm, I said, oh, it's Chris Jenner. When she said that she represented the Kardashians and Jenners, because I just seen Chris Jenner on Ellen. Mm. And so when she said that it was the Jenners, and Chris Jenner and her and the Kardashians were some of her clients. I said, I know who it is. It's Chris Jenner, I'm sure. And my daughter said, What if it's Kim Kardashian? I said, Kim, who? I didn't know anything about Kim Kardashian <laughs> at all. When I went to prison, Kim Kardashian was a little girl. So mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about uh Kim Kardashian. Two days later I found out that it was Kim. Mm-hmm. And also four days after that, I go to the hole. After Kim retweeted it, it went from viral to super viral. And they started getting these notifications that something is going on in Aliceville. It's all these people from around the world are weighing in on this viral video. <laughs> so a video that had already been out seven days, they come get me and send me straight to the hole. And I mm. was out right at two weeks. But by then, one thing I learned about the Internet, Jimmy, is that once something is out there, you can't ever pull it back in. Mm. And so Kim hired lawyers to help me and they worked. They were from all parts of the country, from California, Sean Holly, from Dallas, Brittany Barnett, from New York, Jennifer Turner, from Memphis, Michael Show. So they she assembled what we call the dream team. And then she contacted Ivanka Trump and told her about my situation, who told Jerry Kushner. And they became members of the dream team, too. For So for seven months, they tried to get an audience with the president. We had many false starts. And on my birthday, Kim, May 30th, Kim got an audience with the president. And seven days later, the world watched as I was running across that road like a crazy woman. Didn't even realize <laughs> I could run that fast, Jimmy. And to <laughs> my family. And honestly, I have been running since. But I'm going to tell you why. There is no way that I could spend almost 22 years in prison and act as if I'd never been in prison before, as Mm. if I could just erase that. The day that I left prison and they called my name over that intercom, Alice Marie Johnson, report to R&D with all of your property. This huge scream went up. This whole big, it was like it was three different buildings that housed 1,600 women. Mm. You could hear those women stomping beating the windows. When I walked outside, it sounded, it felt like the ground was shaking. They Mm. were beating the windows and stomping so hard because these women had become my prison family. Mm. They had become my sisters, my daughters, my grandchildren. We had all through what we were going through together. There was no race. There was no religion differences. There was nothing. We all were sharing the experience of incarceration and being separated from our families. And they were crying and beating the windows, telling me they loved me, saying, Miss Alice, don't forget about us. It's like this big chorus. And then when I passed and when I walked to R&D, 
and I had to pass by this camp to get to my family because they only would let one car come. I didn't know all that media was out there because they only let one car. That same scene played itself out. 250 women at the camp. All the guards were out there. Everybody was like at attention. Everybody was out there crying and screaming. And the women who were incarcerated were saying, Miss Alice, don't forget about us. The same thing. And when I left that prison, Jimmy, I immediately, I went straight to work. I didn't forget about them. I started working and doing everything I could because the First Step Act had not passed yet. I came out June the 6th and Mm -hmm. everybody was trying to get bipartisan support. But all of a sudden, my release put a big spotlight. My story magnified Mm -hmm. the need for criminal justice reform. And because of my case, the president asked after everything had been uncovered in my case, he told me to put sentencing reform in because I don't want this to happen to another Alice Johnson. And so the First Step Act was successfully passed and signed into law the year that I came out. And even on in history about the First Step Act, it's being taught in universities, the timeline, that June the 6th timeline, 2018, when I came home, was considered a huge catalyst for getting bipartisan support. So since Mm. I've been home, I have been fighting for the freedom of others. I've fought tirelessly. I've been, I mean, up until the very last moment, I've been fighting and still fighting for criminal justice reform, still fighting for people who are incarcerated. I was able to successfully advocate for changed lives of 46 people who received clemency, compassionate releases, and pardons. I, it was a hard, it, literally, I didn't stop, Jimmy. I did not stop. I'm yet to just say that I've got to take a vacation. That's something I have got to step away and just really, because I came out consumed with this. I was, by the grace of God, given a platform to fight for others. And one of the people that I fought so hard for was Ross. Hmm. And I know Ross is well known in the Bitcoin community, but mm. up until the very last minute, literally, I was trying advocating for Ross's freedom. Mm. But unfortunately, Ross was not one of the ones that I was able to get across that finish line into freedom. But I have not given up hope. You know, that one day he is, in fact, I feel confident because there's no way there is an outcry now for social justice, for criminal justice reform like I have never heard before. So I Mm. just don't believe that it's not going to happen. Mm. Well, so there's so much from your story that's just so inspiring. But sort of before we get to Ross and sort of like what criminal justice reform looks like and so on, when you look back at almost 22 years in prison, like what sort of emotions come up for you? Like, it's clear that you did a lot of good while you were in prison, especially for a lot of women that, you know, really didn't have any hope and you were able to influence things so that they could have at least a little bit of hope. And clearly you had like the sisterhood within prison where you got to know a lot of these people and understand like where they're coming from and be sort of this advocate outside. Uh, when you look back, like, how do you feel about it? What are the emotions that come to you? There's a myriad of emotions, Jimmy. Mm. I lost both of my parents while I was in prison. Mm. So I was not here for the birth of 
Only one of my grandchildren, who was 18 months old when I went to prison. So mm. I didn't know my grandchildren from any other course except through prison. Mm. And I lost a sister while I was away. One of the emotions that I still feel sometimes looking at pictures down through the years, and I'm missing from all of those pictures. Mm. I feel sadness that I miss, but I also feel that my being in prison, had I not passed that way, Jimmy, mm. honestly and truly, there would be there would still be a lot of people, not only the ones who I advocated for, but the ones that that my case was able to highlight that story. And that's why I know about the power of storytelling. Mm. That my story was able to help push something that so far has allowed over twenty thousand people to gain their freedom early. And so do I have regret for the losses in my life? It's sadness, but I have so much joy for what my being in prison has done for others, not only through the people that I met and the lives that I was able to help impact while I was there, but what my release has done. So it is such a mixture of sadness and great joy. But, you know, Jimmy, that's life. Life Mm. is a mixture of sadness and great joy. And for me, I don't take anything for granted. Some people, if you've never lost something, you and never experienced loss of freedom, you don't truly understand how precious freedom is. People walk around and just the freedom to open a refrigerator. That day that I came home, I opened the refrigerator and just looked stood there for a moment. <laughs> Because I had not been able to do that in in 22 years. My first night I spent it with my brother. We'd always planned on me coming to his house because he was living alone. And Mm. he didn't know it. He let me, even though he had a guest bedroom, he wanted me to sleep in his big king-size bed. And when I looked and caught him not looking, I rolled over in that bed. I did what looked like snow angels and everything. (laughs) My legs, everything. Because... I'm able to roll over and not fall out of the bed out of a little short, small Mm. pot that I've been sleeping on all those years. Just everything, everything is so new and so precious to me. It's given me a different appreciation of life because I never, I never really appreciated freedom the way that I appreciate it now. And things that I'll stop and pause and look at and experience, I've learned how to live in the moment, how to enjoy the moment and not let that moment pass that I'm enjoying it. Not keep just, it's okay to plan for the future, but you need to also enjoy the moment that you're in. So Mm -hmm. I have so many emotions. When I think about that time that I lost, I can't get it back. So Mm -hmm. every time someone comes around, you ought to see all the pictures I have. I guarantee you there's no one in my family that I'm not in pictures on their phone. Mm -hmm. They don't even realize why I'm taking so many pictures. I'm always saying, let's take a picture. I'm like, (laughs) what? It's because I have these books that my daughter made albums for me that I'm not in any of those pictures. She was trying to catch me up with these 22, almost 22 years I was gone by making this book for me. But I'm not in any of those pictures. So I'm going to make a new book and I'm going to be in everybody's pictures. (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. So let's talk about Ross Ulbricht a little bit, because, you know, I was 
kind of surprised to hear that you were such a strong advocate for him. Uh, obviously, there's you know some parallels between you and him because you're both nonviolent, first-time offenders, and so on. That kind of got the raw end of the deal. How did you find out about him first of all, and and what led you to sort of advocating for him so much? Well, I found out about Ross through someone else who brought him to my attention. Mm. And uh, actually, Gideon, too, was one of the people that brought Ross to my attention. And uh, the more I read about him, I'm going to be honest, the angrier I got Mm. at the sentence he received as, you know, a 26-year-old man who makes a website. I'm not saying that he did absolutely nothing in his life, but the sentence that he received was it was very cruel and it was very unjust. And mm. then I mean, by that time, his attorney reached out to me. I was already advocating for him. I had been given the privilege. The president had told, said to me, Alice, I know you know a lot of good people in prison. And this was in October of 2019. I was at Benedict College. Mm. And he said, I'm sure you know a lot of good people in prison. I, I went up to the podium and spoke. And when I sat down, he said this publicly. They were filming this. I've seen this this clip run over and over. And he said, why don't you give me some names? Give me some of those people. He didn't, as they said in prison, he didn't say nothing but a word. Mm. He said that my head went, my head was just filled with people that I knew. And people also, because I didn't just fight for women. I fought for both people I knew and didn't know. And so that just really led me on to do everything I could. I had been given an opportunity and I didn't take that opportunity lightly. I got with other advocates and who also gave suggestions, but I had a pathway to go and speak directly to the president. So I had meetings at the White House with the president while I was giving names. I worked nonstop. I was engaging everybody to help me. Other organizations that had attorneys I'm the one that's got that's able to go in. So I am going to go in well prepared. So I'd be given Ross name and seen other things about Ross. And when I really studied his case and broke it down, I knew Ross was going to be one of the primary people that I was going to advocate for. I advocated for everyone hard, but mm. you know, Ross is one that I can say up until the very last hour mm. I was pleading for his release. Mm. Mm. Well, so what actually happened? Because he's still in prison and sounded like you came very, very close. But uh, uh, I thought for sure we had victory in Ross's Mm. case. You know, by this time, toward the end, toward the last months, I become very, uh, Lynn and I were in contact with each other through his attorney and some other mutual friends. They were sending me messages from Lynn. I was responding. And we, you know, we had, it was really a roller coaster. Jimmy. Hmm. I truly thought Ross was going to make it, but I can't tell you exactly, uh, you know, truthfully exactly what happened, but I felt very strongly the president was going to do it. I know Hmm. he had a lot of opposition from some others inside the White House. That's why I know this whole office of the pardon attorney, Hmm. uh, this needs to be something that is inside the White House, and I just don't feel like it should be under the Department of Justice. Because hmm. one thing that they do is they ask the prosecutors who prosecuted you for their approval. What do they think? 
Mm. What do you think they think? (laughs) (laughs) You've been in an adversarial position with them, especially if you went to trial, you fought. Uh I know my prosecutor wasn't recommending that I come out. He was just looking at 20 some years ago. We fought in the courtroom. So he was not trying to recommend. In fact, he strongly opposed my release, even though like Ross, I was a first time nonviolent offender, had a a spotless criminal record because even though I went to the hole they uh, for that video, they took that off of me because I had the paperwork proving that you gave me the permission. So I walked out with a spotless record. And like Ross, Ross has been really, you know, making a difference in the prison that he's in, helping teach GED, just doing so many things. And, you know, if a person is not a threat to public safety, They've done their time. They've made changes. Why is he still there? What Mm. purpose does that serve to still keep him incarcerated? And so I really felt for him, not just the position he's in now, but the age he was. Life just snatched from him. Mm. Two life sentences plus 40 years is just insane. Mm -hmm. Well, when you look at that, does age really, like, does that factor in for you? Because... In a sense, like when you went to prison, I guess you were you you were around forty, yeah. yeah, and you know you were there for a while, so you were you had already sort of like experienced a lot of life. You obviously had a lot of children, maybe, and you saw one of your grandchildren being born and everything else. For somebody like Ross who goes to prison at twenty six, like how does that change everything when you go to prison like at such a young age? You know. When I look at this and I look at what my situation and I've said this, Jimmy, we've all made mistakes, Mm. but no one should be judged forever for the worst mistake that they've made. You know, I don't I just do not believe people can use things for different reasons. I think that what Ross created was, you know, he created with being idealistic, creating something for good. Mm. So. Anyway, whatever the whole situation was, that punishment just did not fit the crime. He's an example of a very broken criminal justice system. And Mm. sometimes people cannot get past really looking, diving deeper. It's like whatever they read in the paper, whatever they see on a show, whatever, because everything is meant to be sensationalized. Mm. You know, but at the end of the day, Ross should be home right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to just keep holding him, it's just not right. And we can't just say, I'm a person of action, Jimmy. I can't just sit back and see injustice. And if I've got the ability to do something about it and not do it. Mm. Well, so going to criminal justice reform and, you know, what the current system is like, what is wrong with the current system? How is it that you or Ross, you know, get these enormous sentences that are completely out of proportion with, you know, the crime that you committed, I think. Like, why is it this way? What broke in order for those injustices to happen? Well, there became this big war on drugs, Hmm. the mandatory minimums, crime bill, all of this played a factor. And Hmm. it's like people... I legislate is they're stuck right mm-hmm. there. It's like people are rubber stamped. I believe in not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law mm-hmm. and the laws itself. Those things are wrong, 
But I truly don't believe that people look at what the spirit of the law should be. If you've got something that you know is unjust and you're mm-hmm. going by the letter of the law that says, I'm going to give you this based on mandatory minimum sentences. I'm going to give you this based upon whatever that's unfair. If I can see that this is unfair and unjust, Jimmy, do you think legislators are not seeing the same thing? Hmm. Yeah. If we and others are seeing that this is broken, I keep hearing about social justice. This is more than just social justice. This is inhumane. These are not just social issues. It's really humanitarian issues. This is not humane to say, I'm going to take someone's entire life. Ross has not murdered anyone. He's not committed any heinous crimes, sex or sexual crimes, none of those things. So when you are holding someone that poses no threat to society, and really, he's done enough time. Let this mm-hmm. man go. He's done enough time. Give him a second chance and see what he is capable of doing. See what he's willing to do. There are thousands more who need this second chance, who are so worthy, so deserving of a second chance, but they're still languishing in prison. You know, Ross and I both had very, my case became very famous. His case has become very famous, but they are both examples of something that is badly, badly broken. And one of the things that I do, I've got an organization taking action for good. And my Mm. focus is storytelling. And Mm. getting these stories out there because it was the telling of my story that set me free, really. Mm. That's what set me free. It gained the public attention. That Mm. is what set me free. So I've been focused really on the storytelling end of it and magnifying these cases to the public. Because when the public don't know, it's easy to forget something that you read. But when you see a story, you see a face, you see the impact families are having, that changes things. You can't just walk away once your eyes have taken it in and act as if you don't know. Because if you walk away and act as if you don't know these things are happening and you've got the power of your vote, you've Mm. got power also to make changes. You may not be a legislator, but you need to know who you're putting in office. You walk away and just act as if, Oh, that's sad. And you can do something about it. Then you're part of the problem. Hmm. All right. So what do you think that we should change within the criminal justice system to make sure that these egregious sort of miscarriages of justice don't happen anymore? What would you change? How would that what would be effective going forward? Well, the first thing I do is I will strike down mandatory minimum sentencing. Mm hmm. I would strike down these conspiracy laws, which is like a huge net, because mm. that's what they got Ross as part of his, why he got such a huge conspiracy. I mm. would strike down these conspiracy laws that are in effect that are welded against defendants, everything they throw it under conspiracy. Mm. And that conspiracy theory is absolutely wrong. Mm. I'd also bring for in the federal system, this could have had a big impact on Ross, at least having some hope. Parole mm. was taken out of the federal system, but it's been left in all of the state prison systems. Mm. Makes a federal prisoner worse than a state prisoner mm. where they deserve a chance for redemption. 
and a second chance, but a federal prisoner does not. Mm. And so that needs to come back. And really, it's too many things on the books that have become crimes now. It's Mm. like, I can't remember who said it or what country said it or what ruler said it, but it was like, you show me the crime and I'll show you the man or something like that. It's like, whatever they've got on those books, you can find somebody, one of these going to fit you if you're a target. (laughs) Yeah, I think I read somewhere that people commit like three federal crimes a day and they don't even know it because there's so many things on the books. There's so many times in the book, but when you become a target and if you've done anything to shake things up, you mess up and become a target, you can get caught in that net called conspiracy and Mm. you're going down. You know, people who are even listening to your podcast, sometimes people can get so comfortable and say, I'm glad it's not me. Mm. But Mm. know this, it could be you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do something now, it might not be you, but it might be someone you love. Mm. Well, the scary thing for me, like listening to your story and sort of like the prosecutorial model that's existent in the U.S. today is that if they don't like you, they'll find a way to put you in prison. Because, yeah, which is which just seems incredibly unfair, incredibly unfair and like just extremely ripe for abuse, which it certainly has in your case and Ross's case and many other people's cases. It has very much. That's why I truly believe that there needs to be some type of accountability. Right now, there's really not accountability. There's immunity for Mm. those. Once it's even found out that they've done something wrong, they have immunity Mm -hmm. uh, to not even have anything brought against them for what they may have done. So what is to deter anyone from welding misuse of power? abuse of power what is to stop anyone Mm. and if you want to spin a tail they get a chance to spin a tail however they want to spin that tail yeah even when things are don't spin out the way that they originally thought they're not going to retract it Mm. yeah and that just seems wrong that there aren't consequences for the people that sort of almost do malicious prosecution or whatever. And, you know, in almost anything else, you're held accountable to some degree by laws and so on. But for a prosecutor, they have immunity. And yeah, it just seems like completely abusive and, you know, ripe for abuse, I should say. And it ends up with a lot of people in prison that maybe shouldn't have been there that long. Oh, for sure. These long sentences, I mean, just to show you this, America is, we account for what, about 6% of the world population? Mm -hmm. But we incarcerate 25% of the world population. Mm. Now, something is definitely wrong with those figures. Mm. This is not right. Why are we incarcerating 25% of the world population? We're either the most evil country in the world or something is broken. And I know we are not the most evil country in the world. So that lets you know something is broken here. But Mm. people are so reluctant. Those who are in political offices are so reluctant to uh, really jump on board with the changes that they see because they don't want to be seen as soft on crime. Mm. They don't want to not be reelected or be elected. 
because mm-hmm. they're viewed as soft on crime. No one is saying throw that no one deserves to be in prison. No one is saying throw open the prison gates and let the flood gates just let everybody out. No one is saying that. The only thing that I'm saying, be fair and just with mm. these sentences. These sentences don't fit the crime. Mm. Do you know that the, the sentence I received was only five years less than El Chapo's? Oh, wow. Now, what wow. does that make? Uh, clearly, there is something. It's not about like punishment fitting the crime. It's more about punishment or the vindictiveness of the prosecutor or something to that effect. It's over, but even it goes farther than that, though. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do this if this system of punishment was not has not gone terribly awry. Mm-hmm. So. These laws themselves have got to be changed, and I'm not going to shut up. Mm. <laughs> I hope you don't. I'm not going to just go away. I'm like up front and in your face. I'm not going away. It's not what I do. It's not about who's in power. Mm. It's not about what political party is in power. It makes no difference. Mm. These are human beings. These are families that are being impacted. And I can't just walk away and act as if I don't know. I know too much. I've experienced too much and I will not be stopped. I will not shut up. I'm going to continue what I'm doing and I'm going to bring it to the light of public because it's just not right. And we sometimes think that we can't do anything because we're just one person. Mm. But that's what it takes. A spark can cause a forest fire. Hmm. Well, I mean, you're certainly been that spark. And and the fact that you've brought so much attention to Ross's case and, you know, like what you've been doing, I think, all through what was obviously a very trying time, whether it's, you know, writing plays inside a prison or, you know, making a video talking about what you went through and so on. You're an obvious inspiration to a lot of people. And it's been an amazing, very fast hour that we we just talked through. So before I let you go, where can people find you? How can people support you? What can we do to help you in your endeavors to you know, help people like Ross and other nonviolent first-time offenders? Well, so help support my cause. My organization is taking action for good and acronyms is tag because I am tagging others to take action for good. And anyone who's listened to this has been tagged. Mm. You now know that you can also be involved. I consider this not just a organization, but a movement, a movement to change, to disrupt. I guess I am a disruptor. <laughs> and I'm not, as I said, uh, Jimmy, I'm not going to stop. So help me. Help those who can't help themselves because I really and and truly am dedicated to the mission that I am on. I've got my family still locked up. Mm. These folks are my family. They're still Mm. locked up. And as I said, I made a promise that I was never going to forget about them. I was never going to stop fighting for them. That has become my mission. And that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm using my voice and my platform, which is huge. I'm using my voice and my platform to make sure that 
others may eventually forget, but I'm not going to forget and I'm not going to let people forget who they are. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been an inspirational hour. Next time, maybe we can do, you know, actually talk about Bitcoin on top of all that. But it's been great. Well, I'm going to just say this. I was at the conference in Miami, the Bitcoin Mm. conference. Uh And what inspired me so much about the Bitcoin community is the excitement and the passion that they have. I, I have that passion for freedom. They have that passion for financial freedom and lifting others up. So I really found a lot of common ground with Bitcoiners. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. Anyway, we'll, we'll have to talk about that next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Unchained Capital is a new sponsor of the podcast. I recently joined Unchained as an advisor on the engineering side. I know the team well, and I'm excited about what Unchained is building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Alice Johnson can be found at at Alice Johnson Free on Twitter and takingactionforgood.org. Until next time, fiat the lender est.